So welcome everyone and thank you for joining us. My name is Andrew Perrin. Uh, I'm a professor of sociology here at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill um, and the director of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities, um, which among many other wonderful things, sponsors the annual Mary Stevens Reckford Lecture, which is the forum for Professor Judy's talk today. Before I introduce Professor Judy, um, let me briefly tell you that the Mary Stevens Reckford Lecture honors a beloved and longtime professor and member of the community of the Department of Classics uh, here at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, and the lecture focuses in one way or another on European studies uh, each year, ideally in February. This year's lecture was scheduled originally for February 20th uh, when we had the, the smallest uh, bit of snow which required us to cancel. Um, and then we rescheduled it. And then of course we've had to move it like everything else online today. IEH will also be, be sponsoring a series of Zoom talks. These are informal conversations, trying to keep going the intellectual uh, conversations that uh, IAH seeks to sponsor in general. Uh, the next one of these will be Eric Kleinenberg of uh, NYU and the Institute for Public Knowledge, uh, who will be joining us um, next week on April the 8th uh, at 2 o'clock. So look out for the invitation to that as well. Uh, so let me then introduce Professor R.A. Judy. He's a professor now of critical and cultural studies in the Department of English at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, and holds concurrent positions as well uh, at Brown University and the University of Tunis. He's been at, at Pittsburgh since 1994. He received his BA and PhD from the University of Minnesota, um, along with additional study at the Al-Ashar University in Cairo. I wanted to tell you a, a brief anecdote before I tell you a little bit more about Professor Judy. Professor Judy um, taught the very first class that I took in college, and I, I took the class because only of its title, and the class completely knocked me for a loop and sent me uh, into my interest uh, in theory and in the sort of preservation of complexity and the importance of the humanities uh, in doing that. And it was the sort of class that over the next maybe decade and a half, as I read something new or thought about something new, it sent me back. I see that's what he was talking about. So uh, it is a great pleasure, therefore, to be able to welcome uh, Professor R.A. Judy for the Reckford Lecture, um, and I hope to stimulate maybe another decade and a half uh, of uh, excited uh, discovery. He is the author of the widely acclaimed book, Disforming the American Canon, and part of the editorial board of uh, editorial collective of Boundary 2, among the most important and innovative uh, journals in, in cultural studies. Uh, as part of Boundary 2, he edited a special issue on W.E.B. Du Bois's thought in 2000, entitled Sociology Hesitant, and it's on that theme, I think, that he'll be talking to us today as well. So again, please mute your audio during the talk itself, um, and we'll open it up for conversation following. Um, but please join me now in welcoming Professor R.A. Judy for the 2020 Mary Stevens Reckford Lecture on the question of beloved community, revisiting W.E.B. Du Bois's critique of the Teutonic strongman. Thank you very much, Professor Perrin, for uh, a very, very generous introduction. Thank all of you for signing uh, uh, in, joining in. I also want to take a moment to thank uh, Sophia Ramos and Ebony Johnson and Rebecca William for their tireless effort to make this happen. Uh, I did show up for the February meeting and had a wonderful uh, day trip coming in and going out. 
because the snow canceled things and uh, had a chance to interact with the three of them. They were very, very helpful. Uh, I also want to thank Professor Perrin for uh, uh, extending to me the honor uh, to uh, give uh, a Reckford lecture, something that I take quite, quite, quite seriously. And I want to thank him for his efforts at the, at the Institute in uh, bringing diverse disciplines into a dynamic conversation with one another. So on the question of beloved community, revisiting W.B. Du Bois's critique of the Teutonic Strawman, why revisit Du Bois's critique of the Teutonic Strawman now? Paramount among the pressing issues of our moment is the continuing appeal of the authoritarian strongman. To quote former President Barack Obama from the speech he gave on July 17, 2018 at the Nelson Mandela Annual Lecture, I'm not being alarmist. I'm simply stating the facts. Look around. Strongman politics. I got a question. Take note, however. The president's remark turns on an implicit distinction of antipathy between authoritarianism and democracy. This distinction belongs to the predominant narrative about the causation of generic fascism, a narrative that can be traced back to the 1938 colloque Walter Lippmann, organized by Louis Rogier, which took up the argument Lippmann made in his 1937 work, an inquiry into the principles of the good society. That argument being, contrary to the then consensus view, socialism and fascism were both forms of collectivism, seeking a more moral and prosperous society for individual profit with the altruistic satisfaction of the collective needs of the masses. Fascism's appeal, according to Lippmann, was in promising to replace the feeble bureaucratic individual of classical liberalism, tamed by the constraints of reason enacted in law, with the heroic man, who by constantly being parabellum, prepared for war, will redeem society from the decadent effects of the seemingly necessary unequal economic system. Peter Drucker, the man who gave us totism and uh, the notion of just-in-time inventory, made a similar assessment in his 1939 work, The End of Economic Man, a study of the new totalitarianism, which analyzed fascism as the attempt to resolve the existential crises of modern society by replacing the morally bankrupt liberal age of homo economicus with a new age based on homo heroicus. Lippmann, both Lippmann and Drucker's assessments were made in the closing years of the Great Depression, when fascism was definitely ascendant and the entire world was on the brink of war. From their perspective, the collapse of Manchester liberalism meant the displacement of the international system by a global order of tyranny. Rescuing that system from that tyranny required redemptive reformation of liberalism. From President Obama's perspective, the liberalism in some form or another had triumphed over fascism. I say in some form or another, because each of its post-war iterations is predicated on the conviction that the inherent rights of the individual are fundamental, foundational to the social order. I have in mind, of course, the 1949 Keynesian-Brenton Woods Agreement and System, as well as the Mont Pelerin Society, which was created in 1947 by Friedrich Hayek, who having attended the Lippmann Colloquium and participated in the formation of its failed International Committee on the Study for the Renaissance of Liberalism, was determined to create a more viable intellectual platform for continuing the reformative revival of classical liberalism. The Brenton Wood documents establishing the economic regimes of the International Monetary Firm and the World Bank expressly state the need to shore up liberalism in the wake of fascism's defeat against any such danger in the future. The Mont Pelerin Society Statement of Aims, on the other hand, addresses the persistent danger of collectivism in general to individual freedom without naming a specific foe. This is in keeping with its founding charter to be a forum for debate. 
discussion and study of the ongoing present danger to liberalism. Its expressed claims of not being a policy institute notwithstanding, the ideas debated and studied by the Montpellerin Society have been implemented by many of its participants who hold government office and work at high levels in both national and global financial institutions. Be that as it may, in the narrative Obama's remarks reflect the activities of both these bulwarks of liberalism's post-war reformations in tandem with numerous policy initiatives such as the Washington Consensus, the Clintonian Doctrine of Democratic Enlargement, are thought to have ushered in a long period of peace and prosperity that reached its apex in the 1990s and now is in crises following the 2008 global recession. Hence, Obama saying, strongman politics are ascendant. In other words, the rise of authoritarian strongmen indicates a crisis of liberalism. But for Obama, and here he is peculiarly aligned with the Montpellerin society, this crisis is not merely economic. Rather, it is the failure of liberalism to instantiate its principle of individual rights and freedom universally. Nevertheless, his administration's policies in redress were fundamentally economic. Strong state intervention guaranteeing the perpetual viability of the free market. That was the point of the 2008 rescue of the global financial order. No matter the difference in the mechanism of rescue, the common premise is that the best bulwark against collectivist authoritarianism, and it is of little moment whether we call this ethnocentrism, neo-fascism, fascism, or white supremacy, is strong systemic individualism underwritten by a free market regulated to ensure relatively equitable distribution of wealth. I don't think this assessment is quite right, however, with respect to the, as I say, continuing appeal of the authoritarian strongman. That attraction is not in response to a crisis of liberalism or economic failure. Rather, the authoritarian strongman is a fundamental element of liberalism itself. Put in place with Hobbes' anthropology, according to which the natural man is an errant wolf, each at war with the other in its, of its kind. While I do not mean to reduce strong individualism to strong man, or even to maintain that they are synonymous, I do maintain that they are interrelated. Indeed, in terms of the history of ideas, they are inextricably related, with the strong man providing the conceptual basis for the strong individual. This has to do with fundamental elements in the predominant conception of civilization, going back farther than Hobbes all the way to Aristotle. So interrogating the continuing appeal of the authoritarian strong man entails a radical reconceptualization of civilization, not just its history, but how we construe its developmental dynamics. It is with that task in mind that I turn to Du Bois's highly acclaimed and off-cited 1890 Harvard commencement speech, Jefferson Davis as a representative of civilization, in which he troubles the traditional idea of civilization being advanced through virtuous coercive power. Du Bois was the first black to speak at Harvard's commencement day exercise. We now know, thanks to Bruce Kimball's research, that the seven-member faculty committee charged with selecting the student graduation speakers initially chose two blacks, Du Bois and Clement G. Morgan, to be among the six speakers selected from the 44 honor students who competed for the distinction. But due to concerns that racist sensibilities would be ruffled by there being two black speakers at the 1890 commencement ceremonies, Morgan was removed from the list. Writing in his personal journal about the selection committee's deliberations, committee member law professor James B. Thayer, who found the entire affair pitiable, sums up the gist of Morgan's removal. 
He, lo he loses his fairly one place there because he is black, or to put it in its mildest form, because somebody else is black. A factor in the selection committee's choosing Du Bois over Morgan as its token Negro was their approval of the way he handled his timely subject, who had just died that December, in keeping with their attitude of accommodation and compromise on the Negro question. They misconstrued Du Bois's handling of Davis as respectful and somewhat deferential. Du Bois was apparently unaware throughout his long career that his singular distinction as first black Harvard commencement speaker was because of this accommodation to racism. He certainly had no knowledge of it when he presented himself on June 25, 1890 to the Harvard graduating class, the president of the university, George Eliot, and his distinguished guests among whom were Massachusetts governor J.Q.A. Brackett, First Lady Frances Cleveland, and the Episcopal Bishop of New York, the Right Reverend Harry C. Potter. He opens his speech with a series of emphatically provocative pronouncements. Jefferson Davis was a typical Teutonic hero. The history of civilization during the last millennium has been the development of the idea of the strongman of which he was the embodiment. The Anglo-Saxon loves a strong, a soldier. Jefferson Davis was an Anglo-Saxon. Jefferson Davis was a soldier. There was not a phase in that familiarly strange life that would not have graced a medieval romance. From the fiery, impetuous young tenet, lieutenant who stole as his bride the daughter of a ruler-elect ruler of the nation, to the cool and ambitious politician in the Senate Hall, so boldly and surely did the cadaverous figure with the thin, nervous lips and flashing eyes write the first line of the new page of American history that the historian of the future must ever see back of the war of secession the strong arm of one imperious man who defied disease, tramples on precedent, would not be defeated, and never surrendered. A soldier, a lover, a statesman, a ruler, passionate, ambitious, and indomitable, bold, reckless guardian of people's awe. Having thus cast the title subject of his address in sharp relief, the boys then, in an abrupt appositive, marked in the speech transcript by a hard dash, focuses the title on, focuses, shifts the focus to the title's prepositional clause, and with truly subtle deafness contextualizes what he has just said in a way that seriously troubles it. Judged by the whole standards of Teutonic civilization, there is something noble in the figure of Jefferson Davis, and judged by every canon of human justice, there is something fundamentally incomplete about that standard. If the tenor of the public praise heaped upon Du Bois's address is anything to go by, his audience seems to have joined the selection committee in miscomprehending the critical thrust of his remarks. Reviewing the Harvard commencement ceremonies in its July 3rd issue, The Nation magazine lauded Du Bois for handling the difficult and hazardous subject with absolute good taste, great moderation, and almost contemptuous fairness. The October issue of the preeminent periodical, Kate Fields, Washington, followed suit, reporting that Du Bois was judged by all to have been the star of the commencement ceremonies and underscoring how remarkable it was to hear a colored man deal with Jefferson Davis so generously, using such phrases as great man, a keen thinker, a strong leader. It's as though these firsthand reporters on Du Bois's commencement speech stopped listening altogether right at the opposite. Because at that point, it was very clear absolutely nothing about his remarks could be seen even slightly to, could be even slightly construed rather as eulogizing the recently deceased president of the Confederate States of America.
In fact, having just cast doubts on the very standards by which Davis is celebrated, Du Bois explicitly states he wished to consider not the character of the man, but the type of civilization which his life represented. More precisely, the focus of his reflection was on that civilization's foundational idea of the strong man, individualism coupled with the rule of might. The standard by which it is conceivable to judge Jefferson Davis as noble. It is this idea, Du Bois declaimed, that has made the logic of even modern history the cool logic of the club. It made a naturally brave and generous man, Jefferson Davis, now advancing civilization by murdering Indians, now hero of a national disgrace called by courtesy the Mexican War, and finally, as the crowning absurdity, the peculiar champion of a people fighting to be free in order that another people should not be free. Du Bois is no more invested here in vilifying Jefferson Davis as a singular individual than he was in eulogizing him. Rather, his aim is to explicate how the idea of the strong man has found an even more securing foothold in the policy and philosophy of the state. The strong man with his mighty right arm has become the strong nation with its armies. The stake of this explication are global, because however a figure like Jefferson Davis may appear as a man, race, or nation, his life can only logically mean this, the advance of a part of the world at the expense of the whole, the overweening sense of the I and the consequent forgetting of the thou. This is the concept of civilization Jefferson Davis represents, which is predicated on the principle that the rise of one race on the ruins of another is the definitive arc of civilization. It may very well be that the world has needed and will need its Jefferson Davis, the boys declaims, but such a type is incomplete and can never serve its best purpose until checked by its complementary ideas. What is required then is a more capacious concept of human history and civilization, a different narrative. And so Du Bois poses the question, whence shall these ideas come? Question posed, it is directly answered. Not as the muscular warrior came the Negro, but as the cringing slave. The Teutonic met civilization and crushed it, the Negro met civilization and was crushed by it. This is not to suggest that the Negro possessed no martial valor. The boys was well aware that they did. In chapter three of The Souls of Black Folks, he maintains all the leadership or attempted leadership, which he says was driven by the one motive of revolt and revenge, typified in the terrible. Referring in illustration to Cato, who led the Stoner Rebellion of 1739 in South Carolina. And if we cast our net further afield across the Americas, we find the example of Marcos Cioro in Puerto Rico, Ventura Sanchez in Cuba, Domingo Viajo in Colombia, as well as Ahuna and Manuelo Calefante and La Dorada in the 1835 Malay Revolt in Bahia, Brazil. And then, of course, Francois Macando in Haiti. Du Bois is not overlooking such individuals. His point is that for all the motivation of terrible revolt and revenge, even in such cases, violence is not enacted in pursuit of individual vainglory. We do not find the likes of such figures as Egil or Ragnar Lodbrok of the Icelandic saga. Rather, what is celebrated about these black heroes, by and large, is their sacrifice in pursuit of collective freedom, which is precisely what Du Bois characterizes as the submission of strength of the strong to the advance of all. His designation for this is the doctrine of submissive man, which is contradistinct to the Teutonic strongman's egotistical self-aggrandizement and assertion of the I. The Teuton stands today as the champion of the idea of personal assertion, 
the Negro as the peculiar embodiment of the idea of personal submission, he declaims. Continuing, either alone tends to an abnormal development towards despotism on the one hand, which the world has just caused to fear and yet covertly admires, and towards slavery on the other, which the world despises and which yet is not wholly despicable. Bear in mind that all this is figuratively speaking. Jefferson Davis is an exemplum of a figure, the Teutonic hero, which is synonymous with the strong man, itself a figure, identified with the foundational idea for a type of civilization, the ascendancy of mighty individualism as the supreme mode of freedom. The issue at hand in Du Bois's Harvard oration is not just what is wrong with Teutonic civilization judging Davis noble, but what is wrong with the very concept of Teutonic civilization, or more pointedly, with the historiography of civilization predicated on the apotheosis of the strongman as its providential agency. In counterpoint, the Negro submissive man is a figure of being in common with one another as the basis for viable, sustainable, worldly collectivity. We have then two figural dyads, strongman, submissive man, Teutonic, Negro. And there is a struggle over the conception of civilization being waged with these figures. My wish this afternoon is to consider with you the terms of that conceptual struggle. There is at play in these two dyads a complicated relationship between figure and concept, between the dynamic movement of language as poetry and the fixedness of concept as determinate definitiveness with its demands of demonstrability or apophantic truth. The complexity of this relationship requires we attend just as carefully to the expressions of figure as to the logical relations of concept. We must carefully interrogate what Du Bois is connoting when he maintains that the appeal of the strongman always arises when a people seemingly becomes convinced that the object of the world is not civilization, but Teutonic civilization. We must just as diligently interrogate what he is talking about when he says, in every Southern country destined to play a future part in the world, in Southern North America, South America, Australia and Africa, a new nation has a more or less firm foothold. This circumstance has, however, attracted but incidental notice hitherto. Or when he then declaims, in the history of this people, we seek in vain the elements of Teutonic deification of self and Roman brute force. But we do find an idea of submission apart from cowardice, laziness, or stupidity, such as the world never saw before. Pursuing this line of inquiry raises two questions. What is this concept of civilization the voice refers to as Teutonic? the foundational principle of which is the overweening sense of the I and the subsequent forgetting of the vow? And what is this doctrine of submission that is at once the check and the complement of the Teutonic man? There are those in Du Bois scholarship who, being inclined to discern a pronounced Hegelian tendency in his early work, describe the doctrine of submissive man as a kind of Christian Hegelian recognition of duty and collective debt as the basis of the state, not subservience. Accordingly, the strongman submissive man dyad is taken to be an iteration of the well-known Herrschaft und Knechtschaft dialectic, which I render as lordship and bondage, following Bally and, and Miller's translations rather than the more recent commonplace code of influence, master and slave. And the Teutonic Negro dyad gets construed as the boys is transferring that Hegelian scenario of the struggle for recognition onto the landscape of American race relations. Now, we know, of course, having learned German at Fisk, Du Bois read Hegel's Phenomenologie of the Geistes at Harvard with George Santayana in, the Santayana in the original. Nevertheless, interpreting his commencement address this way is an exercise in dubious speculation, unwarranted both by its text and Hegel's. 
we do not have anywhere near enough time to explain all the reasons why this is so. Suffice it to say that the addresses figural dyads are not dialectic. Negro is not the antithesis of Teutonic, nor submissive man that of strong man. Neither dyad is a movement towards synthesis. Rather, they are non-synthetic contestations of distinctly different ways of being brought into correlation. What's more, the Hegelian dialectic with its postulate of a singular origin of mind and hypostatizing the events of European history as the global history of mind. A historiography, by the way, emblematized by the figure of Napoleon astride Marengo, riding out of the city of Vienna on October 13, 1806, is precisely what Du Bois is challenging when he says his doctrine of submissive man is predicated on recognizing the fact that no one type of mind is it given to discern the totality of truth. Du Bois does have events of European history in mind, however, in his remarking that the Teutonic met civilization and crushed it, which is in reference to the myriad Teutonic peoples who overran the Western part of the Roman Empire in the fifth century AD. And when he then says the Teuton stands today as the champion of, idea, champion of the idea of personal assertion, the hero the world has ever worshipped, who gained unthought of triumphs, made unthought mistakes, he is referring to what Edward Gibbon described in his The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire as the revolution of 10 centuries. That is to say, the thousand-year span from Docus disposing the last Western Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus, in 479, up to Martin Luther's Reformation, in the course of which the Christian church absorbed the energy of ferocious Teutonic brutality and converted it into the driving force of a renewed faith-based imperial expansion. Gibbon is characteristically ironic when he claims that the manly spirit of freedom with which the conquering Teutonic infused Christianity became the happy parent of taste and science. As he is further on in his history, when extending the Teutonic revolution to 14 centuries, effectively adding the period from the so-called age of discovery up to the enlightenment in the close of the 18th century, he says, by the industry and zeal of Europe, of the Europeans, Christian civic virtue was widely diffused to the most distant shores of Asia and Africa, and by the means of their colonies has been firmly established from Canada to Chile in a world unknown to the ancients. After all, Gibbon's own description of the story he tells is the triumph of barbarism and religion, and he regarded it as a story of progressive retrogression from the archaic conception of heroic martial excellence that the Romans termed virtus, which had been a key element in the millennial-long development of classical civilization. This story of retrogression, whereby the myriad conquering Teutonic peoples merge with the Church of Rome to constitute the Germanic Holy Roman Empire, followed by the Westphalian system of sovereign nations, and eventually the international system, is the history of Europe as perpetual, ever-expanding conquest, and certainly warrants the Bois' label, Teutonic civilization. That designation reverberates with Gibbonesque irony, as does his characterizing it as a field for stalwart manhood and heroic character infused with moral obtuseness and refined brutality. In what I take to be another allusion to Gibbon's history that rebuts its principal thesis, Du Bois says, through the glory of history, the rise of the nation is ever being typified by the strong man crushing out an effete civilization. That brutality buried aught else beside Rome when it descended golden-haired and drunk from the Blue North has scarcely entered human imagination. His description of the nation rising brutal, golden-haired, and drunk from the North to crush an effete civilization 
also brings to mind another Gibbon leader, Friedrich Nietzsche, who speaks of the Teutonic peoples that crushed Roman as der blonde Germanischen Beast, the blonde German beast. He also refers to them as Alten Germanen, ancient Germans or Teutons, in distinction from what he terms uns Deutschen, us Germans, by which he means the degenerate fruit of the very century-long Christian tempering of the Teutons Gibbon recounts. There's no need here to speculate whether Du Bois had Nietzsche in mind when invited by the Dean of Harvard College to write a commencement part. He composed Jefferson Davis as a representative of civilization. It's enough to take note of the resonance in figure and attend to the conceptual reverberations regarding the question of civilization. It is also worth bearing in mind that William James, one of Du Bois's Harvard professors who he acknowledges had considerable influence on his thinking, grappled in his own writing with Nietzsche's views about ethics and action. And James's grappling came into play in the year-long lecture course on ethics he gave during the 1888-89 academic year, which was simply titled Philosophy Four. Du Bois was enrolled in this course and kept a meticulous course notebook on each lecture by order, a notebook that is available in the Amherst archive, in which Nietzsche's concepts and issues regarding the science of morals were matters of some moment between the professor and the young scholar. Those same issues were more fully taken up by Du Bois in the thesis he wrote for the class, a handwritten 55-page essay entitled The Renaissance of Ethics. All this is pertinent because the course notebook and essay provide the critical engagement with the ethical theory informing the doctrine of submissive man. We learn from them that by the end of James's ethics course, Du Bois had determined there is no free will, no human will except in action. This lays the basis for the line of thinking about the nature of freedom and the history of human civilization intimated in the 1890 commencement address. The notebook's last words, man must act, summing up his argument against confusing cause and effect, are fully consonant with Nietzsche's condemnation of free will as a theologian's artifice. Further resonance between their thinking can be found throughout the notebook. Both are critical of moral philosophy for its persistent adherence to theistic teleology, resulting in its untenable propositions regarding human agency, again, most poignantly, that of free will predicated on the concept of causality. And both think a chief culprit for the mess is Kant's categorical metaphysics, which Du Bois in the Renaissance of Ethics calls one of the false theories of ethics. Further on in that essay, as though responding directly to Nietzsche's admonishment to abandon the metaphysical account of the soul altogether in favor of a scientific analysis of the, so analysis of the socio as well as ontogeneticist of the mind, the practitioner of which Nietzsche Christians, Christians new psychologist. Du Bois calls for an ethics based on a science of mind, saying, the new psychology and the modern effort at physical research are tentatives in that direction, but one is more a science of brain, the other very analogous to a study of the human body, which should begin with the investigation of the most glaring monstrosities, of great use, no doubt, but never destined to reveal its true value until the type of which it is a caricature is more thoroughly known. This remark about type with respect to a science of ethics is resonant with Nietzsche's assertion that any proper science of ethics must be based on a comprehensive survey and classification of the immense varieties of actual common forms of so-called ethical practice, culminating in a theory of types of morality. I ask your indulgence to continue patience as I briefly recount some of the more germane points in Nietzsche's typology in order to show you just how, resonance notwithstanding, Du Bois's doctrine of submissive man also challenges it. More emphatically, or perhaps better to say, less ironically than Gibbon, 
Nietzsche construes the distinction between the Teutonic peoples who conquered Rome and those who came afterwards as one of existential moral character. This is in keeping with his premise that particular types of morality may always be considered, first of all, as the symptoms of certain bodily constitutions. That premise turns on a naturalistic taxonomy, according to which there are types of persons engendered by natural and civilizational forces. Among these is the predatory strongman type Nietzsche famously describes as the lustful roving blonde beast, which is his metonym for the lion as the figure par excellence of the predatory animal that when applied to this type can be understood to mean something like lion-hearted. He postulates this to be the primal type of man at the bottom of all noble races, telling us in the genealogy of morals that these include the Roman, Arabian, Germanic, and Japanese nobility, Homeric heroes, and Scandinavian Vikings. Also included among the noble races are the Athenians in their rythemia, their indifference and contempt for safety, life and body, with a terrible gaiety and profundity of delight in all destruction, in all blisses of victory and cruelty. Nietzsche reaches farther back than Gibbon's Roman virtus to adduce as the principal example of, nobility, of noble morality the Homeric arete, the excellence of strong men of instinct and vital desire exhibited in martial combat. For such noble men, to be good is to have communal feeling among the, the virtuous which is to be beautiful, happy, and loved by the gods. The bad, the malice, belong to the group of those subjugated, who being impotent cannot constitute a community in action, and so cannot have communal feeling. These strong men of courage were those Plato and Aristotle called Andros Agathoi, men of excellence. Along their philosophical lines, Homeric arete is transvalued into a universally distributed capacity for excellence in action thereby subjugating the men of excellence's ferocity to reason in, the service, in service to the righteous polity, the Kalipolis. Calling this Socratic moralism, Nietzsche dismisses it as a self-deception on the part of the philosophers and regards the botanic equation arete circumscribed by reason equals ediomina, which Plato defines as the good composed of all goods, to be symptomatic of a pathological condition that he labels Apollonian, which is only exacerbated by Aristotle's epistemic absolutism. In alignment with Gibbon, Nietzsche maintains that once this pathology is taken up by Romanized Christianity, in part through the Neoplatonist Neo efforts of Oregon and Augustine, the ethics of heroic excellence succumbed completely to what he calls the slave morality spawned in the resentment of the subjugated masses. This slave morality replaces the archaic precept, good equals aristocrat, equals beautiful, equals happy, equals loved by the gods, with the contrary precept, the wretched alone are the good, the poor, the weak, the lowly are alone the good, the suffering, the needy, the sick, the loathsome are the only righteous ones. Powerlessness thus requires moral force in the Christian virtue of pity, which Nietzsche calls the practice of nihilism, multiplying and conserving misery as piety on the premise that all humans are the children of God, the banner motto of which is the beloved community. Rather than human fulfillment being realized in the actuality of political quasi-civic life, it is displaced by hopeful faith in the kingdom of God, that is to say, in the future world, so that the ediomena, the good of all goods, is actual only after death. In this vein, the ancient Roman virtue, fides, the reciprocal trust between two parties, 
is transvalued as the Pauline virtue, faith, belief in the truth of the promised kingdom to come beyond this world that can only be known after death and access to which is contingent upon obedience to the church. And thus, the Roman virbonus, good man, of virtus, heroic excellence in action, is transformed into the virbonus of Christian piety. With the Teutonic conquest of Rome, however, Christianity was confronted with a different type of beast, the inwardly wild and self-brutalizing strong but flawed men whose dissatisfaction with their self was not due to an excessive sensitivity and susceptibility to pain, but to an overpowering desire to inflict pain, finding an outlet for inner tensions in hostile acts and ideas. The church utilized its own barbaric force of the Passion and Eucharist to seduce these Teutonic beasts and achieve mastery over them. Once the Teutons assimilated the principal Christian tenet of man's ignominy, they were weakened and made sick psychologically. Nietzsche's point here is that the beloved community is predicated on the strong man's enfeeblement, and that is the Christian recipe for taming for civilization, which he, like Gibbons, views as retrogression rather than improvement. The ferocity and violence of these civilized and civilizing Teutons is just as wanton and impartial as it was before when it was waged in the expectation of inspiring poetic celebration. Only now, it is an act of piety. Redemption is found in killing under the Latinate motto, pro Cristo et ecclesia, for Christ and church. The noble heroic strongman is thus displaced by the pious religious strongman, for whom truly heroic virtue is inaccessible. Contra Renan's claims, Nietzsche quips, if anything is unevangelical, it is the concept of the hero. Nietzsche's typology of morals, thus, gives us two related but distinct connotations of Teutonic. The Altin Germanen, who possessing a ferocious freedom akin to the classical Homeric Arete and Roman Virtus, crushed Rome. And the Christian tame civilizing Deutschen, who are a mongrel retrogression from the noble blonde beast. This is the moral type Nietzsche calls the decadent type. Turning our attention back to Du Bois's Harvard address, it becomes clear that he uses Teutonic to indicate the Altin Germanen, but also as a synonym for Nietzsche's metonymic, lustfully roving blonde beast. And he uses Teutonic civilization in reference to, Gibbon, to the Gibbonian story of Western European civilization. As for his doctrine of submissive man, despite being formulated in the very processes of European capitalist slavery, it is not a version of what Nietzsche characterizes per Christian piety as a slave morality based on ressentiment. In fact, Du Bois's doctrine of submissive man is expressly opposed to the disposition of pious sacrifice. By that same token, in contrast to the Teuton, who having invaded and conquered the Roman Imperium by force, were assimilated by Christian civilization in spirit, the Negro of Du Bois's description, although subjugated in modern Western capitalist Christian civilization, to an intensely systematic, sustained economy of force is never fully assimilated, nor entirely stripped of prior so-called African ways of being. This is not because the Negro is inherently malice, bad, or congenitally incapable of assimilating civilization, but rather because the severe, of the severely limited syntax of Western thought's conception of the human. To get a better handle on this, let's return for a moment and tarry a bit with Nietzsche's Renan quid which is taken from his De Antichrist, about the incompatibility of the hero and the evangelical. There is a remarkable resonance between that remark 
and a hypothetical line of thought Du Bois proposes in the course notebook he kept for philosophy four. A good deal of that notebook is concerned with determining in dispute with James Matano's theory of ethics and religion, the causality of human action in the world in order to discover the scientific, non-theological grounds of ethics. At one point in the notebook when discussing Royce's concept of universal thought, that which combines the thoughts of all of us into an absolute unity of thought, Du Bois ponders something along these lines. Suppose the words of a sentence are minds, then you have the universal mind, etc. We can infer from this that the universal thought is syntactic. Du Bois then writes, by this cause and effect is a thought relation, as in we're bonus. Alter bonus to bona, we're is changed. This causal nexus is a logical or relational nexus. The heuristic altering of bonus into bona changes the terms of relation in accordance with Latin grammar, making the adjective feminine in this phrase, dictates that the noun, we are man, becomes mulier, woman. It does more, however, much more, given the providence of the phrase, we are bonus, whereby the meaning of its noun is paramount. In classical Latin, weir means interchangeably hero, man, grown man, and husband. As stated a few moments ago, the weir bonus as viritus, an abstract noun derived from weir, connoting valor, courage, excellence, and character in a way akin to the homoric arete. All qualities associated with overall manliness in public conduct specific to free adult Roman men. Again, this is, this is the very concept of heroic virtue. Nietzsche, like Gibbon, argues Christianity displaces. Virtus is wholly masculine. Changing the noun from vir to molier based on altering bonus to bona gives us molier bona, good woman. By feminizing the good, the boys' conjectured alteration challenges the presumptive provenance of goodness in the masculine heroic, opening up the ethical question in a radical way that entails far more than a realignment. The etymological itinerary of weir virtus, the boys' supposed alteration sets us on, is particularly germane to his concept of submissive man. That relevance becomes all the more apparent when we take into account the thesis of his essay, The Renaissance of Ethics, which is that modern systemic ethical study has practically made but little advance upon the scholastic method, meaning theistic teleology, and the continued grounding of ethics in such teleological teleology hinders the development of an ethics predicated on an empirical science of mind. This thesis turns on Du Bois's critique of the persistent investment in the summum bonum, from scholasticism up until James and Royce. The historical scope of that critique extends back beyond scholasticism, or even Christianity, however, when we recall that the provenance of this phrase, summum bonum, is Cicero's de finibus bonarum et malum, uh, malorum, on the ends of goods and evils, as the Latin translation for the Greek term, ediomena, which as noted earlier, Plato defines as the good composed of all goods, or as we now say, the highest good. So Du Bois's conjectured alteration of bonus as bona touches on the foundations of the millennial-long tradition of moral philosophy inaugurated with Plato's idealization of the Homeric arete, about which Nietzsche was dismissive. But whereas Nietzsche's concern is the way that idealization degenerates the primal, noble, strongman virtue, Du Bois's concern 
is with how, rather than stripping arete of its martial connotation altogether, moral philosophy simply revalues the mighty right arm as an instrumentality of righteous polity. To put this in more pointedly Roman terms, as Cicero does, civilization is founded and maintained on the authority, octoritas, of strong men emanating from their virtue, virtus. Regarded in this way, civilization is the auto-legitimating exercise of power by boniviri, brave, strong, honorable men of action. The Boise's conjectural alteration of bonus as bona challenges all of this. And if we take into account, take it into account, regarding his calling near the end of his course notebook for a science of ethics, based on the science of mind that promises a better conceptual understanding of human type, we can see he is also challenging Nietzsche's typology. There are types of human being that cannot be comprehended by the binaryism of dialect, dialectic relation. And Negro, in the Du Boisian sense, connotes such. Negro is an articulation of and articulates a capacity of endurance, of moving fluidly in engagement with inevitable force and utilizing it in realization of living potentiality. Dogged patience bending to the inevitable is how Du Bois characterizes this dynamic, and then referring to it as the cool, purposeful ichdain of the African, insists it is not to be regarded with sentimental interest or sentimental duty, but as a constitutive expression of the human, manifest in relation to civilization on par with the Teutonic strongman. Just as Teutonic is the synecdoche for both the blonde beast and the story of the blonde beast as the catalyst of civilization, Negro functions as the synecdoche for a different polyfocal understanding of the set of historical linkages constituting modern Western civilization in an apositional dynamic. In this respect, the ethics of submission Du Bois proposes does indeed regress from Nietzschean mankind, disgracing the noble hero at the foundations of virtue ethics. Although using the term man, Du Bois seeks to dispense with the hero worship of virility, or rather, he thinks the Negro systematic exclusion from it presents an occasion for a radically different conception of the human. When one speaks of humanity, Nietzsche once wrote, the idea is that it may be what separates and distinguishes man from nature. But such a separation is not given in reality, where natural properties and the actual human are inseparable. Relating this to Du Bois's doctrine of submissive man, we can say that the Negro manifests a robust humanity that rather than being in opposition to nature, is an animal energia a being at workness of the human solely and wholly with the flesh. Thinking in accord with that doctrine, the Bois's description of the Negro as the peculiar embodiment of the idea of personal submission is at odds with what Nietzsche takes to be the natural man, whose terrible and humane capacities are the fertile grounds for which alone all humanity grows. The discord here is over whether cruelty is the necessary primal force in forming human community. Cruelty, Nietzsche argues, belongs to the most ancient, festive joys of mankind, where in a horrible mixture of sensuality, it is what he calls Dionysian, that intoxicating drought that, like a suddenly swelling flood, subsumes everything subjective, every individual wave into its momentum. The boys' proposition, in contradistinction, is that cruelty is not necessarily the excellence, arete, of our nature, nor the determinant of our destiny. The impulses of imagination and cogitation are equally animal, equally generative as the predatory. And these, pace Aristotle, are not most excellently fulfilled 
only in the aristocratic republic. Other modes of sociality or community achieve sustainable ways of being human in the world beyond the comprehension of philosophy and virtue ethics. In other words, the Negro is neither Dionysian nor Apollonian, is simply not Greek, Roman, or Teutonic. Du Bois's critique of the strongman theory of civilization as an adequate bad historiography entails a corollary critique of the modern concept of sovereignty. When Jefferson Davis as a representative of civilization is considered in tandem with the Renaissance of Ethics and Du Bois's course notebook, what comes into play is a critique of the dominant tendency in political theory to confound the exercise of force emanating from the individual will with authority, equating authority with sheer coercive power and collapsing that composite into the figure of the sovereign person. Du Bois' strongman submissive man dyad pushes back against confusing political institutions with human society. Contra Hobbes' claim to have radically broken with classical political philosophy, Du Bois regards the sovereign of modern discourses of power as an iteration in the long tradition of virtue ethics, with its underlying Aristotelian conception of the human. His contending that the Negro has illustrated an idea which is at, at once the check and complement of the Teutonic strongman is a gesture towards a reconceptualization of the relationship between society and its political institutions, predicated on the question of governance being regarded in terms of communal authority rather than sovereign power. Du Bois does not, however, with that gesture, abandon the concept of human fulfillment. Rather, in critiquing the tradition of virtue ethics and by implication its derivative political theory, he rejects the proposition that authority is necessarily founded on brute force and maintained by the coercive enforcement of political and juridical institutions. Arguably, his submissive man doctrine implies that, to paraphrase Michel Foucault, sovereignty is never shaped from above, but by a decision of the, by a decision of the strongman, the conqueror. Rather, it is always shaped by the confluence of multiplicious spheres of authority. In this paraphrasing of Foucault to suit Du Bois, the dynamic confluence of multiplicious spheres of authority displaces Foucault's phrase, par en dessus, from below, and elides altogether his prepositional, de ce qui en peut, from those who are afraid. The former is displaced and the latter elided because Du Bois's doctrine is pointedly non-hierarchical, emphasizing a positionality. My point is not merely to remark that Du Bois's gesture towards a critique of sovereignty anticipates Foucault's by 86 years, or for that matter, Hannah Arendt's by some 41. It is to highlight how merely with that gesture, he does something neither of them deign to do. Situate the Negro created by capitalist slavery as a central factor in the modern discourse of power. More precisely, he identifies the activity of those called Negro in response to and aside from that designation, as providing the basis for reimagining the order of human sociality, governance, and being. Rather than the outcome of strong individuals subjugating all in the name of unilinear universal progress towards a telos, a purposeful ending resolution, civilization is recognized as the perpetual challenging of egotistical strength in all its variety, and not just those of rete and virtus, piety and faith, or providence and destiny. Elaborating this change in conception of civilization, Du Bois says, not only the assertion of the I, but also the submission to the thou is the highest individualism. At the crux of his doctrine of submissive man is the proposition that community is not constituted by way of subjection, even according to an intersubjective social contract 
whereby individuals precede community, constituting it principally to secure their supposedly natural individual rights to possession of self and things, which is then called freedom. In challenging our ardor for the authoritarian strongman, Du Bois calls us to always bear in mind that this individualism is a function of civic republicanism, a historicist ideology whereby individuals are co-articulated beside one another simultaneously in community. In other words, he challenges us to reimagine the individual by reimagining community as an open-ended dynamic process of association, a poetic sociality, rather than a contract for defensive security. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Judy, for that wide-ranging and, and exciting reconceptualization. Um, I'd like to open the floor for questions and comments from anyone who'd like to participate. Please either uh, click the raise your hand or, uh, uh, or type a message in the chat and I will uh, unmute you to allow you to raise, to raise a comment or question. Ah, Rebecca, it's good to see you. Good to see you too. Um, as usual, I'm just blown away by your work and your erudition. Um, and of course, given my interest in the poetic and my work on that with regard to Du Bois, I, I want to ask you if you might pick up uh, a little bit on the thread that you left at the end of, of your talk, which is going toward the, the, the poesis, the, the making, and um, how you might elaborate a little bit more on what's coming in your work, which I assume this is a part of your book on, um, titled Sentient Flesh. Yeah, in fact, this, uh, this lecture is, is part of what I conceive of as a series of four lectures, uh, which, are, uh, um, um, which all take up uh, topics uh, in Sentient Flesh. And uh, in Sentient Flesh, indeed, the focus is precisely on uh, the concept of poesis uh, and the way in which by looking at a, a whole series of uh, a popular practices such as the, uh, the buzzard lope uh, dance uh, or uh, Pat and Juba, that uh, uh, a very particular set of practices of living, but also ways of thinking about them, uh, which I don't want to call epistemologies, like practical knowledges, right? uh, what we could call technique. Uh, achieve a way of understanding what it is to be human that is fundamentally poetic in the sense of perpetual creating and a creating that's not grounded in any kind of metaphysics. In fact, the creating that is in no way ontological. And, and, and in that work, this aspect of the boys uh, is a kind of uh, launching pad for that. So I want to show that, that Du Bois is one of the foundational thinkers about something like uh, a black mode of thinking. And I'm wanting to re-theorize what that means. It's not an ethnographic uh, category, even ethical category, but a particular way of being that is constituted in modernity is poetic, right? That, that, that this, is, this is an argument he's making. So uh, this part of uh, this lecture comes from the, the first chapter, which is a very, very long 126 page uh, reading of uh, one of Du Bois's first published short stories uh, in which that poetic aspect is, is very much there. Um, which, which short story is that? Is that the Tom Brown at Fisk or 
of The Coming of John. Oh, of The Coming of John. Uh, I didn't say his first short stories. I thought you said, I, I, you did oh. say, you oh. did say that. So, uh, but when you said one of his first published short stories, I'm just kind of going back to Fisk where he... You'll see when you go to the archives that the, the boys was writing short stories. Yeah. Once he hit yeah. the ground. Yeah. Going all the way back to Fisk. Yeah. And consistently in his Harvard days, in his master's period at Harvard, he began in, in, in the course English 12 to, to continually to write these little write-ups for short stories and, and produces a wild uh, science fiction that is, that is at Fisk. Yeah. Right? Which, which I stumbled upon. When I stumbled upon it, the librarian said, nobody comes down here to read this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, which is unfortunate because we're, we're at the risk of losing, uh, of losing that library and its collection. Yeah, and, and now it's, I mean, it lately uh, done, but um, at least finally a good measure, if not all of the Du Bois papers have been digitized and are, are searchable, so at least now we can begin to widen that. But can you talk a little bit more about the notion of flesh, its relation to poesis, um, your sort of... Um, um, Affecting a rapprochement between this this analysis that you're giving and what's been flourishing in um, critical theory and black feminist um, theory, uh, and so of course I'm thinking not only of Hortense Spiller's notion of the flesh, but what Alexander Wahelier does with the notion of the flesh and habeas viscous. So could could you tell us, you know? where you're going and how, how you're navigating the field in that respect. Yeah, please forgive me for being brief because I'll just use one sentence to leave the floor for others to ask questions as well. That's yeah. the point of the book, Sentient Flesh. And, and I, I uh, Horton Spiller's work is central. And uh, uh, when I say central, there's 50 pages dedicated to reading what she means. But as is Sadia Hartman and Alex work on it. And, and where my take is a bit different is um, um, my argument is that these ways of being I was referring to that are found in popular forms and other forms are ways of being with the flesh. Uh, my point of reference there is a remark made by a freedman in 1932. Us deserved our freedom because us is human flesh. And that notion of, of being with flesh, right? not a being on top of flesh, mm -hmm. not a being in, in relationship to flesh, but being that is just flesh is a, a concept that I elaborate and explore in order to show that it entails a whole different cosmology, a whole different understanding of, of being, right, of living, than the one we've inherited from uh, the long ontological tradition. So unlike Hortense and uh, Sadia and Waheli, uh, and for that matter, Naomi Chandler, who talks mm -hmm. about ontology. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to argue that in these practices, in these historical practices we can study, there's a way of being that has no interest in ontology at all. It's, it's apposition. And, and, and it works in accordance with a completely different structure. And, and that's what I lay out in the book. That, that's the case I try to, to, to establish in the book. Okay. I'm, I I'm just going to ask very quickly. I, I hope that you read my book and, and critique me because I'm thinking of, and, but I would really love to have your response to that. So I'm just going to click out because the, the book you're writing. Or the too, book no, the one the one you reviewed a long long time ago. 
you 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 have a mention. I'll put it that way. You have a mention. <laughs> no, 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 no. I want to. No, no, no. You have a mention. Click out. You have a mention. No, I'm just going to click it because it's just so um, important. All of these terms, you know, why is it that ontology is something that we should dis distance ourselves from as um, scholars of Black thought? Why is it that um, the term epistemology is not useful to us, and, and which goes against, you know, the main thrust of the Caribbean Philosophical Association, which is kind of shifting the terrain, shifting the geography of that epistemology? Is there no way to kind of refashion it? And so if we work within those discourses, pushing at their edges and hoping to radicalize them, you know, as Nahum is trying to do with his paraontology, is, is that a doomed effort? So that's why I'm asking, you know, because my, my whole effort in, in this book is trying to push at those edges, and I'm just, is that a doomed effort? You're, so you seem to be saying there's an absolute different route that we should be taking and i'm gonna i'm gonna mute myself i, I would even say we don't, we don't we don't need it we don't need it as for what's wrong i would say go read the, the politics of aristotle to see why why it's not redeemable or read heidegger and i go through all of that in the text right you know and i read heidegger critique of, uh, of Aristotle as an example of another way of going. Yeah, okay, thank you. May I ask a historical question? By all means. Um, so I'm intrigued by the Harvard Address and in particular by its intentional or unintentional mis misconstrual by, you know, by way of um, praise of the wrong sort, um, which is a, a great, it's just a great historical moment as you describe it. Um, it leads me to a to a question here. With, so as I'm sure you know, in my field of sociology, in the last number of years, there's been a, a Du Bois renaissance. Um, and, and what's been interesting is, I, to, to my mind at least, the most interesting element of that renaissance is the sort of question, how might American sociology have been different had Du Bois um, been uh, granted the centrality that he clearly historiographically deserves. And I'm wondering if, and that's been, I think, the most interesting and productive discussion in sociology. I'm wondering if there's a parallel um, in what, um, what political theory might have looked like um, building upon the, the Harvard address uh, had Du Bois's critique been as, uh, as central as it should have been uh, you know, to the to the critique of the strongman. Yeah, I, I think there would be a, have been a parallel, different development uh, in political philosophy and theory, but also in ethics. Mm. You know, he was he was a polyglot, and he took these things very seriously. I mean, one of the uh, unfortunate aspects of, of of simply historical circumstances is so much, uh, and this has in part to do with Du Bois himself, but also to do with Abtekers uh, having a lead role in the, the, the coalition and presentation of Du Bois' writing, is that so much of his, uh, uh, if you will, theoretical work, so much of his uh, 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 work on questions of ethics and epistemology, 
And it's considerable. Has yet to see the light of day. And, mm-hmm. um, um, I'm of a mind, and Hortense Spillers encouraged me to do this, to because uh, I've annotated, annotated the um, notebook I referred to, as well as the uh, the 55 page essay, to to produce some sort of annotated publication of that, just so people can see uh, uh, the consistency of his thought and the consistent questions he kept going back to, uh, which. In, in a way that I think will interest you, he was very keenly, because he was a statistician as a sociologist, uh, interested in the foundations of mathematics as a way of, 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 of delineating the utility of, of uh, a mathematical analysis for sociology. Not jettisoning aside, but pushing against the tendency to make it the end all and be all. What he called the, the, the need to attend to the uncalculable and the relationship between the calculable and the uncalculable. Hmm. Uh, uh, so that that speaks to the much of what happened with sociology in the 1980s and 90s, where they became obsessed with mathematics. Had the boys been more central, that obsession might not have uh, occurred. And sociology's failure to anticipate something like the 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 Arab Revolution might not have happened because they would have been attending to precisely some of the things you're interested in, and that is the the actual ways in which communities organize themselves in relationship to questions of power. Thank you. Rebecca, did you want to join back in for a moment? <laughs> yes. I have so many questions to, to ask. I think the, the work is wonderful. Um, I'm also wondering how you engage um, Robert Gooding Williams' notion of Du Bois's adherence to aristocratic thought um, in Du Bois's own politics Robert does, he, he does do a reading of Aristotelian notions of the political um, and um, comes to a, a very different conclusion or at least did as of 2017 when I was last in conference with him. So is, is, is his work part of your engagement of the field. I know I keep going back to these engagements um, that you may or may not have with the field because you're, you're cutting a, a pathway here that is very provocative, very, very rich in thought. Um, so, but it's, it's a pathway, as you know, that many have not taken. So I'm just wondering how you engage some in the field. It is, it is not that I agree with Robert. I don't. Um, I mistakenly assigned his book in a graduate seminar and, and before I'd read it fully and then was very sorry that I had. But I, um, but I think there's a great value in you're contributing your thought to the field through this kind of en- engagement. So if you could perhaps speak to. Okay, I, I, um, um, I have high praise for uh, uh, Robert's book on the fourth. Uh, it's truly groundbreaking. And, and in fact, I wrote for uh, I, I, I don't so much approach it as a question of field, but uh, I, 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 I approach it with a certain kind of musical attitude. 
viewpoints and they reframe okay. the question. Uh, and a particular musical attitude. And, and, and that particularity is jazz. So uh, the list becomes long of the people that one's playing with, that I'm playing with. But we're all playing. We're all jamming. And uh, we're all playing to uh, uh, a set of common concerns and issues that, that uh, function almost like a songbook. And, and, and each of us is, is giving our own elaboration and improvisation on it. But, but in fact, we're, we're jamming together. And, and in those points of dissonance, they're, they're amazingly generative and harmonic dissonances, this dissonances okay? that, that, that open up all kinds of possible lines of thinking. So that's my answer in terms of how we relate to my, to my fellows and peers, which is, it appears like a field relationship, but it's a bit more than the field, because I think one of the questions that we have to honestly address is uh, of, of what significance or importance are these questions to the world at large? And, yeah. And, and that's what motivates my, 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 my foundational approach, my attending to the ways in which, uh, whether it's the boys or Robert or Hortense, uh, they're touching upon issues and questions that appear to be uh, uh, common issues and questions for all of us in modernity. And so the question also then becomes, how do we, how do we get the field to speak uh, to uh, not just other fields, right? But to speak to other, other moments, other spaces, other, other discourses in the world. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have a, a term for this, this, this practice I'm, I'm saying I try to engage in. And that term is parasemiosis, which, which again <laughs> has a certain relationship to the notion of being at the crossroads, but that's where, where there's all kinds of, of, of ways of speaking and thinking, all kinds of languages that come into play with one another without achieving a synthesis. There's always mm -hmm. a, a dynamic confluence. So, and the short answer, yes, Robert's work is, again, a, a major point of reference. There's, there's 200 pages of footnotes. Hi there, I'm Betsy Olson. I'm from the Department of Geography at UNC. So. Thank you very much for that talk, which was informative, and I was keeping my video off so that my children and dogs were not <laughs> popping in <laughs> during this moment, but I really appreciate you joining us, um, especially under these circumstances. Um, in this spirit of being at the crossroads and kind of joining at the crossroads, my work primarily has been influenced by um, care ethics, and that's the body of literature that I've been engaging with in a seminar that um, I offered last semester, my students and I were really trying to grapple with a couple of intersecting or potentially intersecting themes, um, things such as poesis. And one thing that I was struck with in, in um, listening to you now, and of course now realizing that I need to do a lot more reading, um, is a question that I still have remaining about um, Du Bois's position toward um, relationality and especially dependency. And so I'm curious how um, he treats the community and themes of dependency or interdependency, um, either in that address or more generally for someone who's, who's relatively ignorant and trying to learn. Yeah, Du Bois has uh, um, a very specific uh, concept that he calls the gospel of sacrifice, uh, which you can find throughout his work. You can do an easy Google search. And 
it's there. There's, there's a great deal that that is germane to this question of of, of care and uh, codependency. Uh, it spread across a number of of talks he gave. Uh, um, 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 it's it's uh, uh, at play. Uh, I, I'm trying to think of uh, 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 where I could send you in the most convenient way uh, to find it. There, there's a very famous uh, talk that he gave at Wilberforce, uh, uh, but it also appears uh, uh, as a topic in his uh, Dusk of Dawn, and it appears as a topic in uh, his autobiography. Uh, uh, and and uh, if you read through that, you see he begins to have a very elaborate concept of, of sacrifice, which is also uh, strikingly uh, um, anti-Christian, mm -hmm. or more importantly, anti-Pauline, mm -hmm. right? uh, uh, where he wants to take... In fact, one of the points that he, he alludes to this is um, in uh, uh, Of the Coming of John, in the speech that... Uh, the character John Jones gives at the homecoming in the Baptist church, in which the speech parodies uh, uh, both Alexander Cromwell's Harper's Ferry speech, but also uh, Corinthians uh, 113. Uh, and and in, that, in that moment, he, he talks about sacrifice. And uh, Du Bois has a motto that he uses throughout his writing uh, that, that appears in the souls and it appears in Dust of the Dawn. Uh, uh, and that is Entbehren sollst du, sollst du Entbehren, which is from Faust. And around that motto, he elaborates his gospel of, of, of sacrifice. Uh, it's a complicated notion of codependency. The point of, the, of sacrifice he's talking about is, is, is um, against what he sees as the, the danger of man. Uh, he doesn't mean blood, blood sacrifice or the foregoing of pleasures of life. That's no life at all. But he does mean something that will develop in Black Reconstruction as a, a kind of communist notion of community, okay. uh, in which there's a dynamic relationship between all members. And by then, he's abandoned the idea of, of uh, the talent intent. That idea he's, he's abandoned by 32 very clearly, uh, precisely because it interferes with any notion of, 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 of uh, codependency and co-cooperation. So there's a lot there. Uh, so, and, and I think I've given you some places you can begin to look. And, uh, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Send me an email. I'll send it to you in writing. I shall. <laughs> Thanks. Again, um, this will be uh, on our website in due time. Um, but let me thank you so much for uh, really an exciting and invigorating uh, set of ideas. I think with some important connections to the, the current world and the current state we find ourselves in, um, but with uh, very uh, impressive and, and surprising new routes for us to follow. So um, again, thank you so much. Um, and please, the rest of you join me in, in thanking Professor Judy for the, uh, the Rexford lecture this afternoon. And enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you for listening to me. <laughs> so patiently and thoroughly.